Please pray with me. And God, I'm going to just start by praising you for the way your gospel goes out. And not only does it enter our hearts and change our lives, but it goes into neighborhoods and it changes street corners and neighborhoods like East Town. And so right now as, as family, we pray for Mike and Jamie. We pray anointing upon them. We bless you for all that you are doing in them and through them and in and through Redemption City. We pray your complete blessing upon that church, God, that you uh, may flourish it for the glory of Jesus Christ in Grand Rapids. And uh, we just thank you that we have another uh, brother and sister um, who's going for the same things that we are. We do not exist for ourselves, but we exist, Lord, for the city of Grand Rapids uh, to bring change, gospel change to this city. Please help us. As we look at your word right now, God, may it just fall in our hearts and by its power and the power of your spirit, may it change us to walk as Jesus walked. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. First John chapter 5. Have we enjoyed this book or not? Are we a little sad to leave it? Did you ever notice that John gets the last word? Gets the last word in the Gospels? Now he gets the last word in the letters, and then he wrote Revelation, so he gets the last word, not just of the New Testament, but uh, of the whole Bible. Today we're going to look at the conclusion of this letter. So, John chapter 5, again, I'm going to, I can't cover it all today. I'm going to be looking at verses 1 to 6 and 18 through 21. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. If you have a Bible like mine, it's found on page 988. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Dash our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. Now skipping down to the last part of this letter, verse 18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps the one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. By being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, 
keep yourself from idols. Such a strange way to end, but uh, profound. This is God's word. You may be seated. So if, you, if you've been here for uh, a lot of these uh, teachings, John is repeating a lot of the things that he's already said in this letter. Dealing with who is Jesus. And in verse 1, he, he lays that out again. He says he is the Messiah, the, the Christ. He is born of God himself. Verse 4, he says he's the son of God. Now the context in which John is writing this letter, and I want us to be aware of this, is the gospel is expanding outside of the biblical world, outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel. And it's going, namely, to the west, to Greeks, to Romans. Greeks and Romans have a very different view of the world. Remember that word platonic dualism. It's this idea that the world is divided into the material and the spiritual, with the material and the physical being evil, and the spiritual, whatever that is, is is the highest good. And Gnostics, to whom John is writing this letter to refute them, they took this dualism to an extreme. And what the Gnostics are trying to do is they're trying to marry Christ with their dualistic view of the world. And so Gnostics, who are fiercely anti-matter, anti-material, anti-physical, at the end of the day, they're anti-creation. Which is why their vision of spirituality is escapist. We escape the material. We escape the world. And then when they apply this to Christ, Christ becomes this very abstract, mystical, spiritual idea because they couldn't conceive of a God who would take on a physical body. That was outrageous to them. That God would enter a physical, material body. And so they they want to spiritualize everything, even Jesus. They spiritualize his life. They spiritualize his death. They spiritualize his resurrection. They spiritualize his kingdom. And I say all of this to say, I think we do too. I think we have over-spiritualized so much of this. But look at verse 6, what John says to them. It sounds strange probably the first time you read it. When he says, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. I mean, what's John saying here? Why is he saying this? Now, I don't think we have to get that cute here and come up with all this crazy interpretation. The first thing you ask is, does John ever talk about water and blood? And remember, 1 John is really the study guide to his gospel. Where is water and blood referred to in John's writings? Does anybody know? It's when he depicts the crucifixion. In John 19, verse 34, it says, And they pierced Jesus' side, bringing a sudden flow of water and blood. In other words, what John wants to say, especially to these Gnostics, is that we are dealing with a flesh and blood Jesus. That the God of the universe is not escapist. He's invasive. He invades earth. 
He has a flesh and blood birth. He lives a flesh and blood life. He dies a flesh and blood atoning death. He unleashes a flesh and blood resurrection. And for what grand purpose? For a disembodied state called heaven? New creation. A renewed earth with renewed people with renewed bodies. That's what we get to look forward to. And see, by invading the world in a human body, I want us to see what Jesus did. Moment by moment, step by step, blow by blow, Jesus lives the life we were supposed to live. He's everything Adam was supposed to be. He's everything Israel was called to be. Jesus loves his father with his whole heart. And step by step, blow by blow, Jesus hammers out the life that was lost in Eden. And what does John call that life? Look at verses 11 and 12. We didn't read these verses, but let your eyes just see them. And this is the testimony God has given us, eternal life. And what is this life? This life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Do you have life today? I'm not talking about just are you living and breathing because uh, the Greek has two words for life. It has the word bios, which means a, a living thing. It means to exist. It also has the word zoe. Zoe doesn't just mean to breathe. Zoe is the quality of life. And that is the word here. So we're not just talking about, when we talk about eternal, eternal life existing forever, we are talking about this quality of life, life to the full. Experiencing it. Do you know it? Because it's this life that Jesus hammers out. It's this life that Jesus offers. It's this life that John says overcomes the world. In fact, we just read about that in uh, verse, let's see, verse 4. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Such an awesome statement. But you know what? That doesn't start with us. That starts with Jesus. Because Jesus, remember, in, in John 16 says, In this world you're going to have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And world here refers to the evil that has infected our world. And when Jesus says, I've overcome it, it's the Greek word Nike. You know the shoe, Nike? which means victory. Jesus says, take heart. I invaded the world. I win. And because Jesus wins, we win. And that's what John is telling us in verse 4. And this is why Gnosticism is, is, is so depressing 
Because in their anti-material, anti-creation understanding, I mean, to think then that just Christ overcame the world so he could just trash it. Are you kidding? God so loves the world. And the word became flesh so that the world would be saved through him. Redeemed, reborn, new creation. Revelation 21, behold, I am making all things new. And then because we are made to be image bearers, to reflect God to the world, he wants to make us new. He wants to renew us, not so that we can escape the world and retreat into our private inner spirituality of self-help and self-discovery like so many Christians see it. But so that we might invade the world as he invades our world and partner with him in making all things new. You talk about a massive reason to get up in the morning. I'll go down another rabbit trail with Gnosticism if you don't mind. Is that okay? Only since John is hitting it so hard, am I hitting it so hard? Worship to a Gnostic is retreat. It's escape. A little bit how we see Sunday mornings. Right now, some of us just see this as we are escaping the world to this place. Do you know the Hebrew word for worship? Avodah. Does anybody know what avodah means? Work. Your work is your primary way of worship. And so Church of Jesus Christ, worship him Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Through your work. And let it be worship. You tracking? I didn't get an amen there. Because that was a good spot for one. Now, I want you to think about what all this means, about what Jesus did and how he overcame the world. It means that we too are going to be overcomers, says John in verse 4. And we're going to do it by walking as Jesus walked. So think about how Jesus walked. 33 years of fire and trial, temptation, tribulation. His whole life was a cross. Then it ends on a cross. And he wins. Because it's victory through defeat. Jesus won not by getting power, but by giving up power. Not by going up, but by going down. Not by exalting himself, but living to exalt others. Not by living to get, but living his life to give. And you talk about a radically subversive life. And this is the radically subversive, radically transformed life. We are to walk as Jesus walked. In fact, the only way John can really fully express this radical transformation that occurs in us, it's, it's the language of being born of God four times. Verse 1, verse 4, verse 18, two times. It's all over this. Born of God. In fact, it's first introduced in John 3 where he talks to Nicodemus. He says, unless 
you, Nicodemus, are, are, are born of God. Unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's ask this question. What does it mean to be born again? I think this might be the most exciting truth in the whole Bible because it's the truth that we can change, that my life can change, that my heart can change, that my character can change, that change of the total person is possible. In fact, it's this kind of change that we see in our text. In in verse 1, we see that our loves can change. In in verse 18, we we see how our behavior changes. It literally says, does not sin. And I'll explain that in just a second. Um, Then in verse 20, it says our entire way of thinking changes through this understanding that we have of Christ. We know him. In other words, what John is again laying out, it's this wholesale change of mind, will, desires. Tell me, what is the home to your mind and your will and your desires? Well, according to the Bible, it's your heart. The Hebraic understanding of heart is that the heart is the home, not just to our emotions, not just to our feelings, not just to our loves, not just to our desires. It's also the home to our thoughts and our beliefs and our knowing. And this is different than the Greek Western conception of things because we've been taught that our, our thoughts are where? Where do we put our thoughts? Up here, in our head. This is where our beliefs are. Our beliefs are up here in our head. And our emotions and our desires and our loves are down here in our heart. In fact, if you're a good Greek, what you want to do is you want to divorce your emotions and your desires from your thoughts. What's that called? That's called a stoic. But see, the Hebrew conception of heart is that the heart is more than my emotions. It's more than my loves and my desires. It's also the home to my will. And it's the home to my thoughts and understandings and beliefs. This is why the Bible doesn't say if you confess with your your lips and believe with your mind. It says, but if you believe with your heart. It's why Paul prays. He says, open the eyes, not of their mind, but their heart. Because biblically speaking, understanding happens down here. Now this might not seem like a big deal to you, but this is a game changer for me. Because if my knowing is up here, then it's divorced from my passions and my desires. It's divorced from my will. Which, think about it, why Western Christianity, our knowing and believing is so often divorced from our living and our loving. But here's the deal, if the Bible is right, if the Bible is right, how can you even say that? It means, I want, I want you to see this, that our knowing and our believing are not separate from our willing and our loving, but they're all wed together. In other words, what I know, what I believe, is one and the same with what I love and how I live. And I don't want to rip my tradition, but I will. It was all about knowing and believing up here. But people were like stones. I remember as a young kid going to church, and it was especially the men. They would just sit there during a song like we sung this morning, How Great Thou Art, and they'd chew their gum. 
It was up here. It didn't get down here. If you confess with your mouth, believe with your heart. And see, this change of heart means a a change in all of me. It means a change in the way I think. In fact, how many times in John's letter does he just use this clause, we know. Because at the heart of being born again, it means we know him. And again, the Greek has two words for knowing. It has oidos and, and gnosko. Here is the word gnosko, which is knowing something by having a personal relationship with the entity that's known. I'll give you an example of this. I could, I could talk to you till I'm blue in the face about something that we love in our family. It's called a Michigan tradition. Which is, on Saturdays, I could tell you about what it is to drive and finally arrive to Ann Arbor and to get your parking spot and to get out of the car, the sights, the smells, walking to the stadium, arriving, experiencing game day. Okay, it's one thing for me to tell you about that and you knowing about it. It's another thing for me to say, why don't you have a personal relationship with that by actually coming and experiencing it? That's the kind of knowing we're talking about. God wants to be known. Look at verse 20. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we might know him who is true. Not just know about him, but know him. Jesus is so passionate about wanting his Father to be known I mean, why do you think he came across all worlds? It was to show us the heart of the Father. Not so we could just know about the Father, but we could really know him. In fact, this is why John describes often this knowing as abiding. It's we abide in him. He abides in us. It's not just this factual knowing, but it's more of a filling. We are in him and he is in us. And see, this knowing then changes the way we see. It changes how we look at everything. First of all, how we look at God. We know God as a father through Jesus. It changes how we look at ourselves. We, we don't think too highly of ourselves, but we don't think too low of ourselves either. It changes how we look at the world. It's like we're not scared of the world. We're not afraid of the world. We're able to enter the world, but yet we don't like overvalue the stuff of the world. It changes how we live. I mean, this is where we have to wrestle with verse 18. Look at this. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Now listen, this doesn't mean that they, that, that they are without sin because John and in, in, in Chapter 1, verse 10 10 says, anyone who says they're without sin is a liar. 
But it's John's way of saying that when you're born again and you're, 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 you're sinning, you can just feel from inside of you, that's not me anymore. That's not who I am. And there's something in us that just so badly wants to be like Jesus. It means that change is beginning to occur, that we're not the same person as we, we were before. And, and, and it means that we're not passive in this process of becoming like Jesus, where it's like, well, it's all him. He's going to do it all, and he does do it all, and he gets all the glory. But we're not passive in that. But we're actively seeking to become like him. Like notice verse 18. Let your eyes see these words. Kind of the end of the sentence where it says, the one who is born of God, uh, God keeps them safe. God keeps them, right? Oh, but then John ends the whole letter, but dear children, you keep yourselves. And see, there's always the two sides to the coin. It's like he keeps us, but then we're also called to keep ourselves. Just like he was put to death for us, but then Paul also says, put to death all these things in your life. We know that salvation and redemption and becoming like Christ is a work of God, yet we're also called to work out this salvation. We're to work it in and work it out of our lives. We're not to be passive, but we're active participants in this whole process of becoming like him. Not because we have to. We want to. Knowing him changes our loves, starting with God himself. Look at verses 1 and 2. Loves the father, loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God, carrying out his commands. We know this from Shema. We we were made to love God with everything we have. In fact, to know him is to love him. And when we're born again, we we start to love the things that God loves, namely his children. And children here here refers to all people. Everyone who's been made of God, who bears God's image. Just think about our world today. I mean, our world screams, love things and use people. And as a result, millions of people today will be used and exploited so that we can have our things that we love so much. But God didn't make us to use people, but to use things, just like he didn't make us to love things, but to love people. And we have it all backwards today. We were made to love people and use things. In fact, I sometimes think about the impact Christians could have in the world if we could just stop Loving things and loving people as God loves people. This is what born again looks like. Are you born again? See, John is writing this letter to tell us this. This is how you know there's this complete change of heart leading to a complete change of life. Now let's ask the all-important question. Amen. 
How does this happen? Well, I like how, how Jesus says this first to a very religious person. I don't think this is coincidence. The first time we hear about this whole language, unless a person is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, that, God is, that Jesus is saying this to someone like Nicodemus. I mean, here's a guy who knew his Bible from cover to cover, probably had much of it memorized. And, and as a Pharisee, as the text says, he probably fasted two or three times a week. He prayed several times a day. He gave much of his money to the poor. Yet Jesus says to him, you, Nicodemus, must be born again. And being born again, it doesn't happen through religion. It doesn't happen through our doing. It doesn't happen through our performing. So if you're trying to change this morning through your own doing, through your own performing, I'm telling you it's a dead-end street that will only lead to despair. John gives us the answer in verse 1. Look at it. How is a person born again? Whoever believes. Let me put belief in in proper English. Whoever trusts. Whoever trusts Christ. I'm going to get to that. Because if we went down that road too early, it would be all about us. But there's something prior to that. Something prior to our trust, trust. And it's... How many times is John saying, born of God, born of God, born of God? It's all over the text. Born of God literally means in the Greek to be fathered of. To be fathered of God. In fact, let's reread verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is fathered of God. And everyone who loves the father loves the child as well. Look at verse 4. For everyone fathered of God overcomes the world. Verse 18, we know that anyone fathered of God does not continue to sin. The one who's been fathered of God keeps them safe. And the evil one cannot harm them. See, this whole language of being fathered of God, now we are in the area of identity. And if you want to know what brings about this radical heart change, leading to radical life change, it's it's a person's heart Mind, will, loves. All being set on the Father. Knowing your Father. It's having your identity formed by this wonderful thought that the God of the universe who created and rules all things is your Father. And see, this is where the ancients actually have an advantage in understanding this because in the ancient world, your identity was solely tied to your family, namely your father. Your father defined who you were. Your your identity came from being a son of Joseph or a daughter of Jacob. You knew who you were through your father. So really, this question of identity really is the question of who's your daddy? Ask yourself right now, who or what defines who and what you are? 
What is it right now that provides you with your identity? See, because how you answer that question, this question of who's your daddy, it's going to tell us who you are. And so right now, your daddy could be your job. It could be your girlfriend. It could be your possessions. It could be a sport. It could be whatever or whomever. You are deriving your sense of of worth, value. It's the source of who you are. And see, the way a person is born again, it's through knowing the Father. His strength. His forgiveness. His endless love. That's how we're born again. And see, it's through this this personal knowing that then our identity is formed. It's it's not formed by what I am, but more by whose I am. I mean, once I was an orphan, but now I'm adopted into God's family, and God is my father. Jesus says, the reason I came to this world was to show you the father. Jesus came across all worlds to find us and restore us to the father. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the father but through me. And so the question is, does your heart today really know the father? Every now and then, I'm not on Facebook at all. I just never entered that world. I'm not saying it's bad or good. It just, I just didn't want to go there. But uh, Libby, every now and then, will just say, hey, you need to see this. And the last couple of weeks, she's been drawing my attention to Dan and Megan Voss and their adoption. And, uh, man, there have been so many times where I've just read what, what, what they're writing because they're just doing a diary of this whole experience and taking pictures and when they finally got her and there Megan is holding little Maggie for the first time and then there's this picture of Dan off to the side looking and you can see in his eyes what's exploding in his heart the tears are coming down it's the father that loves his daughter In fact, I took a picture of it, and I don't know if you guys even got it. Um, but I want us to think about this. What, what did that little girl do to earn their father's love? Absolutely nothing. She didn't need to perform for it. Dan and, and Megan love little Maggie just because she is their child. I think every parent knows this today. I certainly do. I love my kids just because they're mine. In fact, the more they push away and the more they push against, I find myself fathering them even more, becoming more of a father to them. There's absolutely nothing they could do that could stop me from being their dad. I love them. Just because they're my children. 
That's why John says in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us, that we are his children. And it's like, that's not enough. Let me put the exclamation point. That is what we are. That's our identity. And so don't let 1 John put you in performance mode. It's not about performing and proving. It's about trusting Look at verse 1. Whoever trusts that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Or look at verse 4. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Dash. Our faith. Faith is, 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 is childlike trust. Jesus said you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you humble yourself and become like little children. I remember when my kids were little, I remember uh, just throwing them up in the air. And, you know, it just became a game, you know, with a guy like me. It's like, how high can we throw them? (laughs) They loved it. The higher I threw them, the more they loved it. Why? They trusted me. They trusted me with their whole life. This is how we're born again. We know we have a daddy who loves us and we trust him. We trust him with our lives. We trust him with our future. We trust him with our possessions. We trust him with our kids. We trust him with our health. We trust him with our cancer. We trust him with our pain. We trust him with our shattered dreams. We trust him like a little child. And see, we even need to see obedience in this context because we obey not to get God to like us or to accept us, but we obey him because we are his children and he is our father. In fact, it's in this light that our obedience becomes a very big deal because it becomes the proof that we really know him. Because to know him is to love him and to love him is to trust him and to trust him is to obey him. Our obedience is the expression of our trust. Just like it's the expression of our love. We obey him because we love him. And we love him, therefore we obey him. Do you know him as father? Do you trust him today? Are you living an obedient life? Because these are all one and the same. We obey him because we love and trust him. We love and trust him because we know him as father. And see, it's in all of this that then our identity is formed in him. And our lives are radically changed from the inside out. As John would say, we're born again. And here's the deal. I'll, I'll, I'll play the flip side on this. If you find your identity in anything else, you know what John would say? John would be pretty blunt. He'd say, you're a child of the devil. Look at verse 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Because according to John, and we saw this in his, in his letter, and he's getting from this from Jesus, because Jesus actually uses this child of the devil uh, language, which sounds harsh and extreme to us. But John basically says there are, 
There are really two people in the world. They're either children of God who know the Father and that they're his child. And they're children of the devil. Now listen, it doesn't mean then that that those people are evil. It just means, as John says, that they're under the control of the evil one. And again, this all comes back to our identity. If we don't find our identity in our Father, we will find it in someone or something else. And wherever we find our identity, that thing or that person will hold power over us. And John would say that power is destructive. In fact, it's demonic. Because really what we're talking about is idolatry. And idolatry is one of the main themes of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament teaches us that on the one hand, an idol is just a piece of stone or wood. There's nothing to it. But then on the other hand, the Old Testament teaches that that little piece of stone or wood is demonic. And here's how it can be demonic. Because when we find our our identity in a boyfriend, or a job, or a ministry, or our kids, or a pleasure, or our net worth, or people-pleasing, or in our image, or our reputation, these things will control us. They're going to wield great power over our lives. And I know what happens when we read the Old Testament. We see how the ancients worship all these idols. I mean, how they had an idol or a temple for anything and everything under the sun. I mean, they had a temple and an idol to the health god and to the war god and to the wealth god. They had a temple and an idol to the pleasure god, to the sport god. And we just kind of think to ourselves how ignorant they are. But really, it's how ignorant we are. Because they understood something that we don't. They understood that anything and everything can be a God. And that everyone is going to give their life to something. We're all going to bow the knee and worship something. And whatever that is, it's going to hold massive power over us. Why does the adolescent girl starve herself to the point of death? Why does the businessman go into full-blown depression after a failed business deal? Why does the college student feel like their life is over after a breakup? Why does dad have no relationship with his children because of his career? Why does an athlete pump their body full of these dangerous substances? Because food is more than food, jobs are more than jobs, sports are more than sport, boyfriends are more than just romantic pursuits, money is more than just money. These things become our life. And we seek these things and we hang on to these things with the hope that they're going to tell us who we are, that we're okay, that our lives are okay. And whatever these things are, they are supercharged with power and they can exercise massive power over us. They can become gods to us because they become our daddy. That's why these idols must be exposed for what they are. They are not gods. They never would have the capacity to be a god. And when we look to these things for our identity, for our joy, for our happiness, for our worth, they're always, always going to let us down. 
They can't even come close, as Greg would say. They're a ripoff. They can't love you the way you need to be loved. They can't forgive you the way you need to be forgiven. They can't accept you. They can't turn your life into something great. They'll be nothing but a destructive force in your life. Which is why John ends, ends his whole letter with, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself from other daddies. Because there's one God. He is your father. Love him with everything you have. Trust him with your life. Obey him. Let's pray.